0: Hi everyone, this is Rachel Tachberg with the Vet Med Mind. I'm so glad that you're listening today because today's episode's kind of awesome. I had such a great time chatting with Dr. Jane Shaw. You may know her from the FRANK program and all of her work at Colorado State University. She is a professor and a distinguished teaching scholar there. We talked all about her communication curriculum, um, just how she works with students and preparing them for practice life. And of course, with that Frank program and helping people that are already in practice build their communication skills. So it was just so great. Communication in vet med is one of my passions as well. And something that I just love talking about and learning more about. So I know you're going to love this episode with Dr. Shaw. So have a listen. And thanks again for joining us for another episode of the vet med mind. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Shaw. I'm so excited to chat with you today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to have a chance to chat with you too, Rachel.
0: We love communication here at Veterinary Growth Partners. And of course, you are like the industry expert on all things communication. So we're definitely going to go down that path today and hear all about how you ventured into this side of things in our industry. But first, I kind of want to get the background and, and where you really started. So I always like to ask everybody, what was your vet origin story? You know, why vet med? Uh, That's a pretty traditional answer. So vet
1: med was one of those early childhood dreams and love of animals. And I was very, very fortunate that my local veterinarian in my town accepted me as a member of his team at 14. And so that was a dream come true to be able to work at his practice. And I was like many of my colleagues, pretty focused on doing getting great grades in high school, followed by college, followed by getting into vet school, et cetera. So it was a pretty early inspiration in my life.
0: Do you have any memories of what that was like to be in a practice at such a young age? Like what, what were the kind of things that left an impression on you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um there was a lot of fear. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. and, and um and I I guess what was that fear about, um, the fear of doing something wrong really Mm -hmm. as, as such a young person in that setting. Um, and the fear of getting, getting bit by a patient, um, the fear of the veterinarian getting bit while you were responsible for the patient. And, um, but, and I want to say that I had some really wonderful, I'll call it mothering from my elder female colleagues, even even though that was still quite a while ago, it was still, it was a one male veterinarian and the rest of the team was female. So I had some really nice kind of mentoring and caregiving and nurturing from my female colleagues who kind of took them under the wings and taught me how to do things um, so that I could feel more confident and competent and being a a good help. And I, I maintained that job um, summers and one night a week and weekends through most of my high school career.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you were really committed to that practice. Yeah. So I have to ask, and like I said, we're going to get into your communication background, but now maybe reflecting back and maybe you thought about this, what was the culture like at that practice? Like, do you feel like the, you know, communication becoming really like a core focus of yours? Did that, do you like, in thinking back about your first experiences you know, what was, what was the dynamic like? Did you guys communicate well? Did you struggle as somebody, you know, who needed more direction? What was that like? So Rachel,
1: you have a way of getting right to the heart of the matter. (laughs) So my mom and I would joke, which is what version of, we'll just say Dr. X will we get today? Because sometimes Dr. X was chatty and engaged and interested and friendly and friendly. And then other times you would just kind of get the down to, down to business, Dr. X. Um, and so, and I think that's probably pretty common sometimes of our colleagues, right? Depending on how much we have on our plates, how busy we are, what kind of day we're having, um, what, what are, how our schedule's running.
0: Sure. And so,
1: um, yeah, so I would say it was variable depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, at that time, that generation of veterinarians was not trained in communication. Um, they were trained on the job, right? They learned on the job, which is the same. The same is true for me. That's how I learned communication in vet school, too. Um, so, you know, we, they, didn't ha- they, they didn't have the advantage, right, of having a toolbox and having training before they were sent out into practice.
0: Sure. So now when you went to vet school, you know, you, you did the schooling, you learned the medicine and then it was like, okay, now you're suddenly, you know, one day you're in school, one day you're in a practice ready to go. Was there any sort of like shocking moment of like, almost like a reality check? Like, oh, now I have to work with all these people and I have to figure out how to best communicate with them did you struggle at first being in that sort of team dynamic and what was the communication like for you initially? Was it a struggle?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I called it the slip and fall school of communication. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, fall flat on your face and pick yourself up and go, oh, I better not do that again. (laughs) Um, And one advantage I have is I'm an extrovert. And so I'm very comfortable in social situations. And so that and I really enjoy clients and I really enjoy getting to know their pets. And so that was a huge strength that I brought in. But And I had no skills for any of the really challenging conversations. So um, I remember, and I think my colleague did it for me, I remember my first medical error, right? And having to have that conversation with the client and not having any idea how to even start that conversation.
0: Yeah that's a lot to take on as a new doctor and yes. and look these things happen you know we all sort of we know it we don't ever want them to but to complete to come out of school completely unprepared for that type of stuff is not really setting our doctors up for success at all and that's just only one of the difficult conversations you know these days we have difficult conversations all over the place you know about money and about diagnoses and about treatment options and all sorts of things and you know, sometimes what we think will be an easy conversation turns out to be a hard conversation. And so, yeah, now I have to ask, when did the light bulb go off for you? So how long were you in practice before you decided to, to go back to the educational side of things? Mm-hmm.
1: So I was in private practice for two years post-graduation and then um, saw this opportunity in Java that was posted by Cornell University. Cornell at the time was transitioning to the problem-based learning curriculum. And so they were hiring um, veterinarians to act as course coordinators. Um, The problem-based learning curriculum is incredibly resource intensive. And so they were increasing the teams, the teaching teams, and the size of the teams to be able to meet that demand. And I had been uh, at Cornell as an undergrad, and I had done a lot of actual um, experiential learning and small group-based learning through Cornell Outdoor Education. And so I saw kind of the link between um, the way they were developing the new curriculum at the veterinary college and then this undergraduate experience that I had and um, I interviewed for it and I, and I got the position. So there were kind of two instrumental steps. So the first step was getting that position. I was there for three years and it just sparked that I really love to teach. And I want to be in a teaching environment. And so that's something actually that was another spark very early in my childhood. My poor friends, we were always playing teacher.
0: <laughs> so yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And then the second spark, while I was in a, at Cornell for those three years is I got really interested in the human animal relationship. And so those were the early days of really recognizing the power of the human animal bond. And So I started pursuing. So in order to stay in academia, I recognized that I needed an advanced degree beyond the DVM. So I started exploring, well, what would I want an advanced degree in? what would be my passion? And human-animal bond was the path that I was exploring. And in exploring different programs and different potential advisors and mentees for that graduate degree, um, I ran across the program at the Ontario Veterinary College. And applied for, um, with my graduate supervisor, Cindy Adams, I applied for um, studies in, in human-animal interactions and human-animal bond. Mm-hmm. And just as I was starting that PhD, she got funding to support a communication project. And she said, what do you think about that? Would that be a good fit? And it made all the sense in the world to me because the way we honor that relationship is in the way we communicate with that client Um, about their relationship with their pet, about the way we recognize um, the attachment, um, the fragility when the animal is sick, the sensitivity around what's going on with the animal. And so that was the second kind of key point in the path that led me this way.
0: Wow. So Mm -hmm. a little kismet, right? You found this doctor... That whole thing just sort of like came to be, which is often, you know, the best way things just happen. Right. You know, maybe we we had this one plan and this thing was presented. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so now you're getting this advanced degree in communication and like, are you I guess my question is really when you were going into this idea of communication, did you really have a grip on just what a gap there was in the overall education of our veterinarians and the communication process or did that sort of come to come to be known throughout your studies that oh this wasn't just like a me problem or my practice problem this is sort of a systemic you know veterinary industry problem as we work in practice
1: yeah it was clearly a systemic problem and so my advisor Cindy Adams was the first person to develop a formal veterinary curriculum at the Ontario Veterinary College for veterinary students. And so, I mean, since then, the AVMA College on Education, uh, uh, sorry, requires and make sure that all the accredited veterinary schools have a communication curriculum. But at that time, that was in 2000 that she launched that first curriculum at the um, Ontario Veterinary College. And so at that time, no other veterinary schools really were providing that training. Wow. So it was indeed a huge gap.
0: Yeah. Okay, so now you've gotten this degree and you've done a lot of research, I'm sure, throughout your throughout your education. And so, how did you then go about bringing this back into the community? What was sort of the next step in your career path? Yeah, great question. I had no idea whether I'd have a job, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. That's because scary. I was yeah.
1: I was doing something brand new. Um, so she was the first one to do. You know, develop a curriculum, and I was the first one to actually research what veterinarians are doing communication-wise. It was the first project in this realm. Um, there were folks who had done some qualitative work, but not really looked at the details of what veterinarians are doing. And so, it was really a pioneering path, and I had no idea. Um, and so, my first step in that path was. It uh, was the time when I was finishing up my PhD. Was when Western University College of Veterinary Medicine in Southern California first opened its doors. And so another kind of continuity of themes is they were developing a problem-based learning curriculum for their veterinary students. And so given my experience at Cornell, um, I aligned with them and um, got a job with them. The, The challenge was at that time, I would say they were still building the cake of their curriculum, the base components Mm -hmm. And so at that time, you know, communication was like the frosting slash, or even sprinkles, Mm -hmm. Um, not even frosting sprinkles probably. (laughs) And so I wasn't able to, I was able to do a lot of great teaching and I did teach communication. um, But I was doing a lot of different, I was teaching a lot of different subjects. And so in that time, um, the position came up at Colorado State University and I applied for that. And I'm one of, I think there's maybe five of us who have dedicated communication positions at a veterinary college. And so I've been fortunate that 17 years of my career have been there and um, the administration invests highly. Um, it's one of the flagships of our program that the communication curriculum and how we equip our veterinary students for success in communication.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure for all of our listeners, you know, it's it's so well known and so well-regarded as well as sort of, you know, you're the go-to person for all of this stuff, you know, so that's really incredible. And also that you have such a great faculty that's also trained in communication. Is that something that other colleges have at this level or is Colorado State and, and where you are still probably maybe one of the more heavily invested as far as getting, yeah, communications? Yeah.
1: So as I said earlier, all the veterinary schools are now required to teach communication, and it, the level of investment—investment investment meaning the number of hours, investment also meaning the way it's taught—versus lecture versus laboratory—is um, highly, highly variable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Colorado State, along with like the Ontario Veterinary College, um, Washington State University, North Carolina State University, are some of the le- you know more leading programs who. Put a more potential investment in both hiring faculty to lead those programs, as well as um, the, the investment in the curriculum development and time spent training students in their during their four years in veterinary school in communication.
0: And has there been, to your knowledge, or this is something maybe you're doing, any follow up research for the for the students that come out of vet school with this education, as far as their ability to? or preparedness, I guess, like, I assume it would just be more like self-rating once they get out of school and and get into practice?
1: Yeah. So we have,
0: um, I mean, the ideal is to actually see what happens
1: to their skills. And so that's a dream, but to track the students is very difficult after they leave us. Um, but it'd be a dream to be able to analyze what, their, what skills they're using out in that practice setting. And we do have alumni data, so we are required by the AVMA, like many other colleges, to be able to assess that. And we're very fortunate that the perception of our alumni and their competency of communication is is very, very high. And then likewise, the perception of employers hiring our graduates is also very high. Yeah. Um, our graduates are known to have that toolbox and to be able to handle those difficult conversations based on their training.
0: For sure. And I'm sure a lot of employers think that there's an opportunity there to create that culture around communication, you know, that they can sort of pioneer the efforts in their local practice. which is Yeah. Now that you have this incredible curriculum, I'm curious, as far as the sort of things that you focus on, difficult conversations is clearly one of those big factors. Um, Do you guys do any other communication skills like interpersonal skills with colleagues, teammates, things like that?
1: Yes, so uh, the students get probably over 25 case exposures during their time with us, and a subset of those case exposures are t- communication with team with with team and colleagues, and so we have an interaction with a, a distraught veterinary technician who is handling a patient um, with a you know quality of life concerns. And then we also have a colleague to colleague. So a early career graduate having to approach a seasoned colleague, Mm
0: -hmm. which is
1: probably one of the most intimidating conversations about mentoring and about um, sharing cases and teaching each other. And so we're trying to help. I mean, I think the key principle of our curriculum is that we develop a toolbox of skills that we can use in any interaction, whether it's personal or professional. And to translate those skills that they're just not for clients, they're for all of our colleagues.
0: I love that. And now I want to ask about the FRANK program. So at a certain point, I'd love to hear sort of how this became a part of Colorado State and your training others. You decided this is something that other people need access to, right? So how did that all come to be? Yeah, so that came to be
1: from an invitation by Zoetis. And so at that time, so I just had launched what was new, a new drug at the time, Rimadyl, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly transformative medication at the time. Um, the first NSAID for canines in pain management and arthritic control. And at the, it also had challenges, right? It also has side effects, especially on the liver and some GI side effects. And so... Their product support line, which is run by veterinarians, was addressing a lot of calls where clients were calling in and saying something like, "My vet never told me. Mm. Yeah, they never told me this could happen. They never told me this was a potential complication." And so Zoetis was like, "Well, how do we support the profession in having these conversations?" Which is all of our, um, like all of our procedures, diagnostic, diagnostic tests, and treatments, right? Where the underlying principle is to do no harm. But sometimes we do harm in trying to do good, not on purpose, but it's just an adverse effect or a side effect of a of a procedure or medications. And so that was the origins of Frank. Um, And that's probably over. I don't know exactly like over 12 years ago. Wow. Amazing.
0: And so you developed the curriculum based off of what you were already doing at Colorado State. Yeah. And so we
1: packaged what we were doing for our veterinary students. So so many veterinarians hadn't been trained in communication. And so this was an opportunity to kind of package in a what I'll call an intense boot camp weekend um, what we do with the veterinary students into distinct workshops and courses. Wow.
0: And I'm sure, especially initially, right? And I know because people still talk about your program and still want access to it. Um, Were people just banging down the door? Or are they like, oh my God, this is, we've needed this forever. Yes.
1: I don't know. In early days, it was not such a banging down the door. Okay. Now, now it is um, filled in a second. In the early days, it was taking, getting the word out. And so... Yeah. So we did a lot of marketing and a lot of recruitment of individuals and created testimonials and and it soon gained momentum.
0: Do you feel like there might have been any any part of um, like the culture of that med where maybe we we might have been unwilling to admit that this is something we're not good at or it just took a matter of time for them to, you know, be like, you know what? We I'm willing to admit that this is an area I need I need help in.
1: Yeah, I think your point is well made that, um, you know, how many cover letters have you seen that I'm an excellent communicator? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think the perception is the perception is because we communicate, we are good at it. And we've been communicating, you know, since we are we ones. Um, and it takes a lot of self courage and bravery to to look at self, right. And to Um, receive feedback and see what our strengths are and what our challenges are. And that's what I'll call some high risk, vulnerable learning. And so um, that's not, you know, that's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, And it's also incredibly transformative to be able to keep that open mind and be receptive to that and be able to go, oh, my gosh, if I just tweak this, um, I can really make a difference in my day to day.
0: Yeah. And is that what you find when people come to your courses, um, whether they be students or people that have been in practice a long time, is it sometimes really just small tweaks? Uh, I'm sure it's different for everybody, but is it really just a matter of like word choices or small body language, eye contact, you know, can it, can it really just be that small that can make such a big impact?
1: Indeed. Indeed. Um, We're not doing major renovations. We are, so we teach skills and I often tell our our participants that they already have a strong toolbox. They wouldn't be as successful as they are without a base set of skills. And that sometimes our skills, just like uh, Stephen Covey's principle, get rusty and we need to sharpen the saw, right? We need to take the rust off and, and sharpen the edges. Um, Sometimes they fall to the bottom of our toolbox and we forget to pull them out. And so what I talk about is using these skills with intention and purpose. And so often um, the other school of communication that I went to is the winging it school, right? So, so many of us just wing it and hope it works. And, And so the idea with the curriculum or the workshops is to really think about using your skills with intention. So I've got being aware of what is happening right now, and then going, oh, if I could establish some partnership, if I could express some empathy, if I could see where they're coming from, all of these skills might help move this conversation forward. So then using those communication skills with purpose and intention to to um, you know achieve an outcome with a client and to get over a hurdle.
0: Yeah. I love that you say just based basically communicating with intention because I, we are always on such a fast pace. Like everyone is moving so quickly. And literally when somebody says to me, can you repeat what you just said? I'm like, Nope. (laughs) Like that's how, that is how quickly my mind is moving. And it happened already. Like if I had to reflect on, you know how a conversation went in my own brain and you know i i know that we're often really good at doing one or the other giving us big pats on the backs or being overly critical and it's really hard to fall anywhere in the middle but you know it's hard i think for our team to really slow down enough in those moments and actually like give any real-time feedback to themselves to recognize that maybe something i just said is why this person is now agitated and i think that it all just moves so fast and we're not used to paying enough attention in communication outside of the practice, too that we can connect those dots really quickly. Um, so I guess my question then is, how do you get people to stay present? Like what's sort of the what's that tactic? Because it's going to be impossible to make change unless they're noticing what's happening around them.
1: yeah, yeah this is going to be deceptively sound deceptively simple, and it's incredibly difficult to do, right? One is, to be present, to stop our monkey minds, right? To be there in the moment. And the second thing is to listen to what the person is saying across from us um, and then building that conversation based on what we just heard. And so often we are in our heads with my next question, my agenda, my next question, and not truly picking up on what that client is saying because there are all kinds of detective clues and what they're saying. And then you just stop and say, well, what did you mean by that? Or what, how did that look when you saw that? Or can you describe that even further to me? Where you're building on something they said as part of the conversation, instead of driving it with your own questions and agenda.
0: I love that piece of advice because I know from my own personal experience, I literally would walk into an exam room, take a history from a client, I had my agenda. I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm taking notes. But it was really about me checking the box of what I had to do before the doctor comes in. Then the doctor hears what I had to say. And again, I have the things I have to do and have to talk about and have to this and have to that. And I can see how it can be incredibly challenging to tell a doctor with the time constraints of appointment and all of the demands of a busy business to basically try to turn all of that off to a degree, obviously we still have to do the things, but also listen, be present, allow them to speak, you know? Um, so one of the things I would like to ask your opinion on is when you say be present, what are some of your tricks or do you, you know, what do you recommend somebody who's trying to turn off that mental dialogue of, oh, I have to tell them about the blood work. And I have to tell them about flea tick. I have to do this. I have to do that. How can I shape myself of that?
1: A couple ideas. One is to stay curious. And so truly be curious about something about this person. And if you're struggling with something to be curious about with this person, then something to be curious about with that animal. And I think most of us can find something to be curious about with that animal. And then maybe once we're curious about that animal, it can launch into being curious about that person. I love that. you know, I think practice can become very rote. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways to break up it being remote rote is to, I, I always say, find something unique in every conversation in, about every person or about every pet. And then that breaks it up, right? That makes it more engaging. That makes it more interesting.
0: I love those, both ideas. And especially with the curiosity too, like you said, you'll never really know where to land you, so you have to kind of stay on your toes. You don't have the next thing you're planning to say. You don't know what they. You haven't laid out the mental map of how this conversation could go, and I liked it too because ultimately, veterinarians are scientists, right? You guys, you like curiosity is an inherent part of being a doctor and doing your entire education and constantly being curious about what's happening with each patient. So it's really tapping into a skill set that everyone's already using all of the time. It's just a matter of awakening it in a new way, which I think is very cool. I would also like to ask you, what is your favorite part of the educational training? Is there like a a semester or a course or a component that like really rubs you up that you're like, oh, this is my favorite one to teach?
1: Yeah, it's not so much a course, it's the lab. Mm. So whether it's Frank or whether it's with our students, being in the lab and being a coach. So let me just paint the picture of that. So each the way we run our courses and workshops, there's five individuals in the room, whether they're vet students or veterinary professionals. And then there's a coach in that room with them. And we are working through cases together. So we're seeing clients. We'll see five clients usually in one laboratory. And um, often the way our courses and workshops are designed, we get what I'll call day one laboratory together, and then we get day two laboratory together. And my favorite is day two laboratory because day two is when you see um, the skills come into play and see the pride and the accomplishment and the comfort and the confidence with those skills. Um, because day one is often we're still kind of awkward with them and and that's totally fine right we're still trying them out and trying them on and but then they really start fitting us on day two and you get to see the light bulb moments come on and you get to see what's gained with that client and it's 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 like you get to be on the side of the rink when the goal is
0: scored <laughs> yeah I love that that's a great way to feel And I think we can all relate to that feeling, you know, like when you, when you did it, because ultimately no one's coming to this workshop because they're experts in communication. So (laughs) there's, there's going to be room for improvement. And I honestly think that probably you still learn from your own teaching, right? It's, it's this constant reminder and like, Oh yeah. Like, or something that becomes more relevant based on where you are in your career or how you're feeling that day, because that's it too, right? It's we're people and small things, big things, our feelings, our emotions, the way we slept last night can impact all of it. And so it's kind of cool that, uh, that you get to be a part of all of that because yeah, getting, seeing people light up and have their win is a good feeling. Amazing. So what is your vision for the veterinary industry? You know, from your perspective and all, all of your areas of focus, what do you, what do you want or what do you hope to see? I, I really I think
1: my underlying passion for a lot of this work ties into one of the biggest crises in our profession right now, which is well-being. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of brings us back to the earlier part of our conversation, which is gosh, you haven't been trained. Gosh, you carry the burden of that. You have, and so kind of I have this metaphor. I have this metaphor of the backpack that veterinary professionals carry a backpack. And they have a argument with a client um, or a colleague. Um, A intense discussion, something that doesn't go right or feel right, or they don't feel prepared for, or they feel lack of confidence in, and they keep chucking these things in their backpack. And pretty soon that backpack gets heavy and, and we don't process it. We don't take it out. We don't ask for help. We don't um, go to therapy around it, right. Or talk Mm -hmm. it through. And so our backpack gets pretty heavy. And so my, my wish for the profession is that we, um, in vet schools, we continue to invest in training that out in practice, that we support our colleagues in getting this training. And my hope is that being equipped is going to be a buffer for some of the stress and challenges that we face in practice. Because if we feel more confident and confident having these conversations Maybe we put one quarter of the case in our backpack, or maybe we don't put it in our backpack at all. Or maybe we know how to debrief it when we have time and go, you know, okay, I see how I could do that differently. And I can actually call that client up right now and I can apologize and I can revisit that conversation and take it out of the backpack and fix it and drop it and not have to carry it
0: around with That's beautiful. And I really like the way that you describe it because I can... I can see it, you know, thinking about people in practice that it's you're right, it, it it gets thrown aside, it doesn't get talked about. And, and that's it. And it's like thought of as it's done, it's done. Even if you know, you've made maybe a terrible mistake in the way you communicated. You know, you don't often see people go back to tread back over those difficult waters to manage it, right? It's hard to open that back up. So uh, I I really like the inspiration because it's true, you can you can call someone back. You can have a do over, you know, um, and that could be good for everybody. So that's beautiful. I think that's fantastic. Now, I have to ask obviously, you know, everyone wants your training, they know about it. So, what's the current status of Frank, and uh, what can you tell us about how people can access programming or if there is access?
1: Yeah. So, Frank is still alive and well, and it's still running all these years later. Um, it's often in A partnership with organizations these days. As you can imagine, it's in demand for a lot of organizations. And we also have individual seats that come available. And so if you are interested in attending a workshop, you can reach me um, directly or the program directly. And so if you were just to put in your Google search engine, CSU Frank Workshops, it'll come up and the contact information will cut them up. It's vetcom at colostate.edu is the email address to say, I'm interested and we can maintain a wait list. So if we don't have seats available right now, we will have seats sometimes come up available at last minute. And if you have the flexibility, um, we can reach out and say, here's our, here's the our offerings. And here's the openings
0: that we have. Perfect. Yeah. I think lots of people will be getting on your wait list. That's for sure. <laughs> So good. Well, the way that I always like to close out our podcast is doing some rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask you a few quick questions. So that way we can just have a little fun here at the end. So what was the name of your first pet?
1: The first pet when I was a baby growing up was Louie. Louie. And what kind of pet was Louie? A miniature poodle. And he did not like
0: me because he was, he was the first child. Oh, gotcha. I can see how that would be a problem. <laughs> gotcha. But you still love pets.
1: Uh, I still love pets. I liked him, <laughs> but he didn't like me. <laughs> that's so funny. What is your favorite kind of music? Oh, that's a tough question, Rachel. I um, I think my favorite genre is really singer-songwriters. Mm-hmm. We have a very strong music um scene in my town, and I actually have a pretty open mind. Um, but I think the senior uh, singer songwriter genre is probably what I listen to mostly.
0: Yeah, for but sure. I
1: do love disco to tell you.
0: I, I mean, what's not to love, uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> which leads me to my next question. What is your go-to karaoke song?
1: Oh my God. Okay. Uh, truth be told, never sang karaoke and really really good thing that I have not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's never too late. You've got to be with the right crowd, a lot of encouragement, and support, <laughs> and backup singers. That's that's the case. Yes. Well, what would be your go-to? What is your sing in the shower on a car ride with all the windows down? Yes. So just this weekend, I was listening to Bill
1: Withers, um, lovely day Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It was played a lot during COVID to remind us of, you know, that to help us remind us that we will be out of this.
0: Yes. Um, And
1: so that is like my happy song. And so I like to sing that. Yes. That's a good one. What is your number one guilty pleasure? Oh, ice cream. And the close second is pizza.
0: Hmm. I I I can agree to both of those. I would literally eat pizza every day for every meal for the rest of my life. Um, no one would even have to force me. No. <laughs> it's just not socially acceptable, but I would do it. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. What's one thing on your bucket list?
1: Oh, I am still have a lot of things on my travel bucket list. Um, Iceland is mm-hmm. one of them. Yes, for sure. And I'm, yeah, still getting out of the travel glut of COVID and yes. getting up the courage to book something and not be fearful that it's going to be canceled.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, your flight might be canceled, but the trip doesn't have to be. <laughs> well, Iceland is beautiful. I I was lucky enough to get to go in college and um I would you go winter or summer? I think I would go summer, but I'm yeah. also a big winter person. Yeah. Um but I think I I'd, I'd like to go summer for um the fjords, right? Yeah, it's just so beautiful and green. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I went in the summer and then of course in the winter, you know, you have like the beautiful aurora borealis and all that all that just it's just you just have to go twice, that's all. <laughs> or just move there and just see it all forever. <laughs> um what's your go-to airport snacks speaking of traveling?
1: Oh, airport snack. That's a great question. I am one of those people who pack their lunch. Oh. So, so wild. yes. So, and it's often a salad um, that I make from home and carry with me because, um, you know, when you go on vacation, you're going to eat more junk. And so this is like my last controlled healthy meal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your ability to just withstand all the temptation. So good for you. I'm very jealous. And if you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Yeah. Don't try to be perfect. Mm. And so this, this loops back to our conversation earlier, which is, you know, I do this for a living and I mess it up all the time. It is, um, there is no ceiling to this work, um, no matter what. And so when you said you're probably learning things all the time, I'm always learning things and I'm always seeing different ways of doing things and I am never doing it right. I am always, and so um, the thing in the last probably, five to 10 years that we've really worked on is what I'll call recoveries, which is guys, you're not going to get this right. Don't expect yourselves to get this right. But what you do is be aware in the moment. That's where the presence comes from. And be aware this is not going where you want it to go. Or if you're not aware in the moment, reflect on it later and go, oh, that didn't happen the way I wanted it to. And then make that recovery. So pick up the phone or apologize or ask to meet with that person and
0: re, you know, ask for the redo. Yeah, that's great advice. It's it's so easy for us to just count it as a loss and say, all right, well, that sucked. And then try to move on. But like you said before, we carry the weight of it and and it really does get super heavy. So great. And we advice. often grow.
1: Yeah, we regrow that relationship, whether it be with a client or a colleague, because of our willingness to be courageous and vulnerable and go back to that and say, Yeah, and it it builds a level of trust that we wouldn't have if we didn't do the cleanup.
0: So true, and also sets a precedent for that other person, so that maybe when they misstep, that they remember when you went to them and corrected your action or had a conversation to say, you know what, you know, Dr. Shaw did it, so maybe maybe I should go and apologize or go and do this, and it starts to build that culture and you know, makes it safe for other people to do the same thing. Yeah. Nice modeling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well... I so appreciate your time. I I could talk to you about this forever because it's so interesting to me. And I know that there's so much more that our listeners want to know. And uh, so I just appreciate you sharing and telling us how people can access the Frank training if they want to. So we'll be sure to put that also on the podcast episode. So Dr. Shaw, thank you so, so much for being here. I so appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for your great questions.
1: It was a really enjoyable conversation with you. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, everybody. And uh, by the way, if you know somebody that in your life is a success story in veterinary medicine, and I really mean this, it could be, a kennel worker. It could be the person who cleans your hospital. Uh, It it can be the best client that comes through the door who is an animal advocate, Uh, a success story in your neighborhood. Uh, Those are the kind of stories that we're looking for. And so I don't think we're going to have any shortage uh, of uh, candidates, but I'm always interested to hear what you think of when we say, who's a success in your life? What's going on in their vet med mind?